Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. We are here today in Mike's backyard, uh, so this will be our first time recording in his backyard. We've recorded in the house before. Mike has redone his backyard. There is a bunch of uh, various sorts of wood um, constructions. I don't know a good like word above for us. Yeah, it, uh, there's a pergola. There is a deck to his pool. Um, we are at a picnic table that Mike built out of wood as well. Just and, today. And so um, we are uh, giving that a shot. So if you'll have different background noise than in my backyard. Right now there's a, what you say those bugs are called? Cicadas. Cicadas. Uh, not been many airplanes. Mike does live closer to the airport. And unfortunately, the Shotzi bunny um, plot line will have to wait. I should have brought her because you have rabbits in your backyard, Mike, yes? Right, and we have, I don't know if they're hawks or not, but these are big, big birds and our neighbors and our tree, and our trees. And uh, so if we see something, we'll point it out. Okay. By the way, I, I should have brought her then. I was going to uh, mow the lawn today, but I want to keep the same vibe as we're... As your backyard. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> so we'll come that. back in a couple of weeks then. Yeah. Don't mow. That is Peter, by the way, if you're wondering. Peter is not only he's joining our us. He's our new guest. He's not uh, only joining us for, for winging it, which I is way outside it. the norm, um, but he's joining us for recording in general. So he is in Mike's backyard with us as well. Um, we are going to be recording an episode after this, but we are currently recording a winging it session, uh, continuing in our series on church history. We've made uh, quite a amount of uh, progress in doing so. And we've made our way now all the way to the Enlightenment, and I think we'll mostly talk Enlightenment. Once again, we are uh, loosely using Mark Knoll's book, Turning Points, as we progress, although I think we're going to be kind of departing from that more and more as we make our way into a little bit more of um, modern church history, probably more focus on Lutheranism and uh, less on Christianity in general. I'm, I'm guessing at least Mike may talk me out of that, though. I don't know how far we plan to go with the series. We'll see. School is starting on Monday. Um, Monday from when we're recording this now, which is uh, the end of August. And this will probably come out middle of September because we've got so much backlogs right now. Yeah, Ben needs to get on top of that, huh, Peter? Yeah, no kidding. Um, Who's Ben? Yeah, it, uh, you, you, you should, we should introduce him to Ben sometime. Yeah, we should try to get Ben on the show. He'd be so, a good guest. He'd be a good guest, yeah. yeah. Um, so we're going to be talking Enlightenment. It'll be good to have Peter with us with his background in philosophy as well as we continue the series then. Um, as we've kind of been doing, Mike, if you don't mind, since uh, you read the book, um, if you could give us just a little bit of an intro, what we're talking about in this um, period of time, kind of what the the framework is, things of that nature. We last did Pietism in the Wesleys, and so we're going to jump, which a little bit ahead to a, a reaction against that, but especially French Revolution and the Enlightenment. I, I'm sure Peter's going to want to take us to Scotland a little bit, perhaps, but uh, especially France will be focused upon. Yeah, so the turning point that he... Uh focuses on is uh, the French Revolution. But as always, he's just saying, here's one event. There's more going on here. That's the uh, the theory of his book, or, or I should say the pattern of his book. So French Revolution. So uh, you're talking 1780s and into the 1790s. Um, you have um, <clears throat> a, a discontent with the French people for a lot of different reasons. You have um, you have a discontent with the monarchy, but also like within with the, church. the French people. You're within saying the French, the French people. people themselves are discontented. Not are that dis- the world is discontented. Yeah, they are with discontented, them. and um, there's economics in play. There's politics in play. There's religion in play. There is um, the Enlightenment, 
and religion in play here. And the French are always fascinating to me. And, and I have Simon Shama's big book, like the, I can't remember the title of it, of the, of the French people. And I, I, I love Simon Shama. I think he's, he's, he's great. He did a, a great series on art and Britain uh, for uh, public, uh, public television. And so I'm looking forward to that. In fact, Noel uh, quotes Shama too. Um, but what's fascinating about the French people is very much they talk about the French identity, right? And what is that? And so if you hear on the news, okay, there's some sort of immigration kind of situation in France, it's a different situation than it is in America when we talk about immigration. Uh, they're much more concerned about French identity. They're not more concerned about, okay, the Muslims are going to come over and everybody's going to become Muslim and not Christian anymore. They're concerned about um, immigrants coming and not being French, right? The French culture, the French identity. And what is that not French identity? French, yeah. right. the, what's the French identity? I mean, they're, they're okay with being not ethnically French, oh, but they want you to buy into French Absolutely. Values, yeah. So you have the Francophile uh, countries on the west coast of Africa. Absolutely come on in, right? You know? Um, as long as you are going to be uh, France French. Which is, right? in many ways, involves the secular, right? That this is yep. the state itself. I mean, religion is okay as long as it's a private thing. Right. But you've seen this come up even with the controversies about um, what religious clothing can be worn in mm -hmm. public, things of this mm -hmm. nature. And so when uh, someone wears a burqa in France, it's not so much, um, oh my goodness, they're not Christian. It's they're not being French. Right. And so the, the identity of what it means to be French, um, is it tied to this monarchy? Well, clearly it's not going to be anymore. Is it tied to the state? What, it, what, it, what does it mean? And I think the seeds of that are, are already here in the French Revolution. So and really the Enlightenment and the Revolution are going to say it's not going to be tied to Catholicism anymore mm -hmm. either, which will be very important for the French because that, you know, you look at the, we've kind of gone past the Thirty Years' War and stuff like that, but you look even with the, um, the religious wars with the Huguenots, especially in Paris in the St. Bartholomew Day's Massacre, the, the real tension with the Huguenots was it was seen as a, a kind of a, um, they were a, a blot on the purity of the French, you know, we are good French Catholics and this is, um, uh, you know, the, the body of the church or things of this nature. So um, the Enlightenment in many ways reacting to the religious wars is going to, so it's not necessarily tied to Mike is, you said ethnicity is not necessarily tied to Christianity. It's it's going to be well, what fills that void? Yeah. So your you, good point of you're coming out of a very violent past that, since everything was connected to religion on the continent, uh, had a religious motive, if not at least some sort of veneer veneer of religiosity. There's like um, a bunch of gnats back here, Mike. Just you you're going to be fine. Are they flying on you too, or you're no? Be fine. I haven't noticed anything. No. I've sh I showered today, Peter. Did you I, shower I did. today? I showered they twice. Are all over the my problem. computer. So anyway, <clears throat> you're you're coming out of this very violent past on the continent, and what's an easy target kind of to say? All right, if we get rid of kind of this religion and we have an enlightenment, we can move forward from this. Turns out that's not going to be the case. It's going to be very, very, very violent. So through all of it, and we won't go into the details of actually what happened in the, in the French uh, Revolution, but you have the storming of the Bastille, July 14th, still celebrated. Celebrated in Milwaukee in Bastille days. Bastille days, yeah. 
and uh, Robespierre eventually is going to come on and he's going to uh, he's going to cut off a lot of heads and then eventually his head's going to get cut off because um, this this uh, violent revolution um, doesn't have a way to go afterwards what's what's the tie that binds we've talked about that before but also uh if you if you're pulling on the masses to rebel against a monarchy and a church that you think has been oppressive and has been um not fair and just and then you don't really replace that with something good something bad's going to happen and eventually that we're going to get to napoleon and he's going to become emperor and he's going to settle things down for a bit, but uh, eventually it takes a while. But then you're going to have the nation of France that we know, and um, uh, uh, and but and Peter will kick it to you in a second because well, I think Mike, wait, just to sum it up, is they could not America as hard as we could. I mean, we revolutioned <laughs> first, and we uh, we pulled it off. Did I've, you know that they took our freedom fries and made them French fries? Yeah, I know. You know, so I studied in France a little bit. Um, uh, in English, not in French, just so everybody knows I'm not that smart. Um, but my daughter was like, are you going to eat a lot of French fries there? I'm like, oh, silly, silly little girl. They don't. Seriously, every meal I had French fries. <laughs> um, but it was a good but we, win. We did, do the, we did a revolution and it worked. I just want to point out. <laughs> it did. Yeah, no, it would be, that would be a fun episode if we can find someone that can talk about the distinction between the two, those two revolutions. Because there's a lot to be said there. And it's kind of, I mean, it's a fascinating question to say, why... Why did one, you know, quote unquote, work and the other one not so much? But we don't well, need to get into that well, right now. Jesus, Peter. That's why. <laughs> he loves America. Yeah, he loves America. America. Uh, it's, I believe it's uh, the shining city on a hill. Oh, man, this is all making sense now. <laughs> um, there is some truth to that, of course, that Christianity had, had a larger role uh, after post-revolution in Amer- revolution in America than, than in France. But that will be for a different topic. So... Uh, Notre Dame uh, Cathedral. Um, they I you, they you take mean over Notre Dame. Notre Dame, the Fighting <laughs> Irish. Um, they are taken over, and um, uh, reason is they put down, on the Jesus. altar. And instead of uh, celebrating uh, the mass, they're going to celebrate kind of this this uh, celebration of human reason. Start playing soccer and so, in there. Very, very, very symbolic to take Notre Dame and didn't do they, that. Didn't they carry like Rudy out of the I think so. sanctuary yeah, on they, their shoulders? They lit, they, uh, I'm not sure. Hanged you guys, Rudy. I'm not sure, but I think you have you have some you have your history mixed up. Anyway, Peter, talk about reason and the French Revolution and Enlightenment. Start with Notre Dame being taken <laughs> over to be the temple of reason. Well, I, I can't because this isn't actually an area where, that I've studied a lot, but I, I do want to say, just kind of as a preface. Glad we, uh, we waited for Peter I know, for 15 exactly. minutes to record. <laughs> um, have, have either of you read uh, Eccentric Culture, Western uh, Theory of Western Civilization by Remy Brock? No. That way? You should read that. You'd appreciate it. I'll, I'll give you my copy. I read it in graduate school, so it's been a while. But his his whole theory is like that eccentric, that that you know that its identity is outside of itself. It's you know the the technical Are you guys sense messing of with me with these gnats? You really don't have gnats over there? No, I just sprayed myself with bug spray. I know? sprayed so. myself too, and it's like they they love it. Sorry, go ahead though. <laughs> but so the whole idea of like you know what is what is culture obviously becomes a big what is culture or you know what is french in this case becomes a big a big question my my period actually is is shortly before this dealing with the the changes in the early moderns and uh kind of what leads into it so 
I don't have a lot to add specifically. Well, maybe to set that, the stage but... with that. How are we going to get here? Well, so yeah, so we we did the episode a while back on um, uh, Francis Bacon, and he's an Englishman, of course. But you have his contemporary. Um, Wait, then why is he Francis Bacon? Fr- that's a good question. He's why is he not England's Bacon? <laughs> It's uh, like the uh, English general named French that, and during the World War One, that couldn't stand the French, right? So, yeah. um, no, so he's in England, and uh, you've got Rene Descartes in in France, um, and France and German, present day Germany, and that area. But um, they're really pushing this this idea of reason as we can control the we can control the world around us. Now, there's not like this clear break from religion. Um, it's not. It's not antithetical, but you see those seeds already being sown there. That um, if for for a good example would be Descartes' um, dualism, where he's got the mind and the, the the soul, or the body and the soul, excuse me, that are separate. And so then, if the body and the soul are separate, a very modern idea, and they're not they're not you know intertwined in this inseparable way, then you can deal with the human body in a way that's very, what we might say is um, scientific, modern scientific. And I mean, there's even some reformational roots probably in that. I mean, the two kingdoms or spheres, you know, there's some of that groundwork is laid, not not meant to go where they take it, but, um, you know, the idea that uh, the two realms are our life here and, you know, we have some control in our vocations or, um, you know, to run the state as well as we can you know the state is not the church um, but yeah sorry. no I think that's I think that's right and that's one of the reasons why I've always struggled with the two kingdoms doctrine because I understand it is it's very helpful but it it uh, there's, there's always something that just rubs me wrong about it because we can't make these clear distinctions that are just so obvious I mean we are as a as a person we're we're a we're an individual and we're, un, we're yeah, united and, and, and so. the two kingdoms is not the wall of separation that's that's not what is meant by there and 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 I don't know, not that this is part of your hesitation, but it took me a while to appreciate that. When you, I heard two kingdoms, I automatically thought as an American that there's a separation between church and state. Yep. And that's not what the two kingdoms uh, is necessarily getting after. It's, it's much more complicated. It's overlapping. It's much more about law and gospel. When you mix the two kingdoms, it's, it's a law and gospel get messed up it's a law and gospel kind of matter yeah no i and i agree with that and we st- i don't think we've done an episode on the two kingdoms yet have we we should we should probably do that because sure. it's it's one of those that that always kind of bothers me but There's yeah like 10 get- freaking nets <laughs> on this computer i'm not even joking so, but sorry go ahead um, do, you re- do you really have no nets over there or are you messing with me they're staying away from me i don't know what they do they like about you i may see them all right go ahead sorry up here but going back to Descartes' separation, this dualism that people are their body and then they are their soul, and so you can be separate. And so the idea of, you know, even something simple that we might take for granted is the idea of cremation that becomes, you know, just uh, for a lot of people kind of matter. Of course, no big deal. Um, previously, that would have been um, abhorrent. Uh, how could you do that? Uh, this body is going to rise again on the last day, and we're told, and so now if we cremate it, um, you know, to save even just spreading the, spreading the ashes. You know just, what I, I would say as a pastor about cremation? What? When people would ask, they would, you know, I'd say, yes, you can put it back together, and then I would go over the history of this was kind of a thumb and nose at the resurrection, and I would just say, it's not wrong if you do it, but Jesus has, a, and it's more, it's, Jesus can put back that body no matter where it is, how, how it, how it has been disposed of or whatever, but he's got a lot to do that day. So why don't you make it easier <laughs> on make him? Make it easier on him. Yeah. 
No, and I'm not trying to make a statement on cremation either. I don't. I don't really have a position on. It. I'm Seems just saying like you it's are, though, something honestly. that it's something that wouldn't have. I mean, even, my conscience feels bound, Peter. <laughs> wouldn't even been. Uh, well, I was, if anything, I was saying I don't have a problem with it. But um, so free yourself, Wade. Um, no, that whole change, that whole transition, though, where you've got um, this. That, that's going on in the early modern period, I think it really comes to a culmination in the Enlightenment, the French Revolution. Um, the, there's, there's an empowerment in, in all of these changes for the individual that we hadn't seen in the West. You know, even, even when you go back to, to ancient Greece and stuff, I just think that the, the individual is seen very differently. And uh, it's, uh, it's not the robust idea or concept of individual that we have in the modern era that we take for granted and it makes it somewhat difficult to explain for myself certainly but the students as well when i'm trying to explain to them why you know how this is different when you're when you're reading plato or aristotle they're not seeing the same thing so all of those changes are coming and i the way i see it is that philosophy generally leads culture it precedes culture and so it you see these changes in uh in the way the thinkers are thinking about the world and, and people. And then you see things like uh, a lot of revolutions and then philosophy starts kind of dealing with those questions as well. And then it, culture kind of follows through that. So that's, that's all I've got to say for that. And then maybe as we connect it to the church, as you have um, a society in transition and, and you have, economic and political changes that are taking place as well that, that feed into all this. Um, I mean, just economically or class-wise, you have a, a growing middle class, a yeah, bourgeoisie. the great fear of the, um, you know, that the peasants are revolting and wiping away the, uh, taking, taking control and wiping away the documents that say that they're, you know, subservient or however it would play out in a legal sense. And then the great fear in the aristocracy that this is serious. Like, yeah, I was going to talk about that. But I guess I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Wait, I won't. Go ahead. No, that's fine. I'll he thought maybe you forgot because nats. the gnats. Yeah. Um, yeah, but so um, you've got a, you know, a growing middle class bourgeoisie that has economic influence but doesn't have concomitant political influence. So, you know, you have a nobility that has less and less economic power. It's growing poor and poor but still has political power. Um, and then, you know, people who are increasingly wealthy, think of a merchant class, who don't have equal political power, and that's always going to be a recipe for confrontation. Um, associated with the French government as well, when we think of the estates, is the church. So the church has not only spiritual authority in France, but a, a good deal of political authority as well. Oftentimes the nobility are connected with that in one way or another. And so... As you see revolution begin, as Mike said earlier, you're going to have people beheading each other, turning on each other, um, because the question becomes, you know, they know what they're opposing, but what really are they for? And you can say you're for reason, but reason can be played out in a number of ways. Um, But the one thing that will come out is that they're, for the most part, those leading it are very leery of the church um, and... uh, especially its influence, but I would say, and Peter, you can correct me if I'm wrong or Mike, but of its doctrine as well, um, you have people who are okay with there being a deity, with being a God, (coughs) but Christianity specifically, the Enlightenment and the emphasis on reason begins to see a lot of things associated with it, and especially with Catholicism, uh, as superstitious, uh, things of this nature. But this antipathy 
and this aggression towards the church becomes very important. And I think it's also telling for our own time in America where you have probably an America that's coming out of the 90s and the Christian coalition and a very strong evangelical voting bloc um, and uh, a Christianity that in some ways was at least attempted to be legislated. I don't know how well that was ever done. Um, but people who have a hostility towards the church, not always just because of doctrine and that, but simply because of what the church stood for, and in many ways it stood for the status quo, and I think we see that in our own day politically in America today, um, the church oftentimes is much more aligned with conservative parties than with, with liberal. And so all these things are coming to a head, and, and you have a church in France, at least, that's not really able to answer these challenges well, um, to argue against them well. Uh, in Germany, you're going to see a different tact taken. Um, you're going to have some who will cave to the Enlightenment <clears throat> and say, okay, we're going to go higher criticism or neo-orthodoxy or, you know, Boltman still wants to have Christ, but, right, we're going to demythologize. Um, and then you'll have those whose reaction to the Enlightenment will be fortress mentality, later fundamentalism, things of this nature, which plays into inerrancy becoming the starting point for doing theology, which really isn't healthy rather than Christ. But the the church, there's going to be people who try to answer but it's not going to have the the best answers. And then when Napoleon comes, right, the church is going to kind of try to um, grab onto those coattails as well. But sorry for interrupting you, interrupting me. No, Go ahead. Look no. at it, By the way, look at this book. You're How many right. gnats are on that book right now? I don't now? know why you attracted these gnats. Now they're all over me, Wade. Is that your book? That's mine. No, that's Mike's. So, oh. No, I think you're onto something there about this is uh, important for today. And I think much more, uh, a greater parallel than America is Ireland right now. So in Ireland, you have quite a, where the Pope is visiting right, you as have, we're recording. You have uh, a lot of the schools, most of the schools, uh, even though they get state funds, are run by Catholic organizations. And so when there's a rebellion, um, you look and you rebel against who's in control. And the state may be in control, but so may be the church. You see this in um, uh, the Russian Revolution, where orthodoxy becomes uh, the enemy of the people. And, and I think, I, I always wonder if, going back in history, if the church hadn't been so much about power, would the people have revolted against the church um, and instead of just the state? And this right? is oftentimes postmodernism's issue with the church, too, is it's against right any dominant power, mm -hmm. and the church has been identified with that. And so in, in America, it's a little bit different because uh, we do have that whatever you want to call it, for lack of a better term, a separation. Uh, for those who want to rebel and are, think that the, the world is not, or their specific state is not treating them well, that there's injustice, um, to be able to s separate that can be difficult, but I would challenge you to say, uh, the church may be your friend here, um, the one calling for justice. Uh, don't conflate, okay, I'm just going to re rebel against every power, right? And so you can see that in all those countries. It depends how, you know, what we mean by the church, though. I mean, the, the institutional church at this time was not necessarily crying out for justice yet. Right, and that's exactly right. So it, it's a criticism on the church in those times. The Anglican, a little bit different, but the Anglican church in, uh, in, 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 in the whole British Empire uh, could be accused of that in a certain way, but not so much as maybe Catholicism in Russia or... Uh, I'm not sure about Orthodoxy, Eastern Orthodoxy in Russia, but uh, there is a history of the church being a power player 
in places where they should not be. And and, and inevitably ends up being that the church does law. And then when there is a rebellion against um, laws that are not fair or a society that is not fair, then the church is on the hook for that, right? At the same time, especially in America, it's a little bit unfair to say, well, the church is this establishment that we need to rebel against because it's unfair for this minority or whatever. Hold on a bit here. I think it, it's it's a little bit more complicated than that. So, uh, but definitely, I think Ireland right now is definitely going through something that was very similar to uh, France in the late 1700s, uh, Russia in the early 1900s. So, I, th- I think you know something to remember as well when we're thinking of Europe and. Um, for much of the Middle Ages and even beyond that where Catholicism still held sway, you know, when nobility are challenged economically, they don't have the wealth they used to have and land isn't as worth as much as it used to be. Um, but, you know, the eldest son or whatever the hereditary rights might be in a territory would oftentimes inherit the land. But what were you going to do with the younger kids? And this is even the case, Luther marries Katie von Bora, <clears throat> nobility. Um, they would oftentimes end up, find up find out find themselves working in the church right this was a landing ground for them and so this only reinforced in many cases the identification of the church with the ruling class or with the nobility and it also unfortunately meant that the um the church had rather than simply spiritual or biblical concerns um it kind of became identified with the class and it took on some of the concerns of that class. And I think we see that in our own day once again, where if you were to ask the average American Christian what Christianity is about, there would be a lot of Americanism that would be expressed in that, um, or concerns for, especially in mainstream Christianity, mainstream Protestantism, um, white middle class, bourgeois, maybe even suburban values that would come out. And so it's it's a good reminder that sometimes when people are reacting against the church, they're not reacting against Christianity per se, um, but what the church or Christianity as they've encountered it has come has come to uh, to be. And this is why, for instance, you know, I always uh, refuse to put political signs out in front of the parsonage or to be posting a lot about politics, things like that, because uh, that can be a very unhealthy dynamic. And the church can oftentimes end up with uh, people who are not going to give it the, be- the benefit of the doubt who otherwise might have because it's associated itself with things that need not be associated with. Um, and, and I don't want to get too much on a tangent on that, but I do think it's important for people to understand all that's in play with that. Um, maybe, Peter, if you don't mind, we, we're, we're throwing out reason here, and they want right pure reason, and we're going to govern based on reason. And really, this is going to work out of just um, alternating tyrannies, even though they don't intend it to be that. And they do come up with the guillotine, which is a wonderfully humane way to cut off heads, but they're, <laughs> they're going to have a lot as of far parties. As cutting off heads goes. Very efficient. <laughs> yeah. But maybe the shortcomings that are exposed in that mm-hmm. of um, reason is a powerful thing. It's a good thing. Even in America, we say we should govern, you know, not based upon scripture, but upon reason, natural law, things like this. Um, but Voltaire, Rousseau, um, you know, even Hume, Kant, um, there's a lot of philosophy that's going to come out of the Enlightenment. Um, Haman is something Peter, someone Peter and I both have been talking about trying to read more of and discuss, is going to react against that. And Bayer has a good book on that we referenced in the last episode. But maybe just um, kind of the threads of thought that's coming up. I mean, philosophy is changing with these developments as well. Yeah, well, and I, I think um, one of the things we see is this question of, of reason, rationality. Um, 
you you have this transition going on and we want you know we're in love with reason we want everything to be rational and then what comes right after that you know I mean you can you can say it's postmodernism or or however you want to kind of bleed into that but the question then becomes you know well which rationality right i mean um alistair mcintyre has a a book entitled whose justice which rationality it came out in like the 1980s i think um but it's that that question becomes really pressing then because if we're going to embrace reason in this you know this is going to be our guide and this is going to be our you know this pure reason well it comes very very quickly it becomes obvious that reason isn't a monolith you can't just you can't just point to it and say there it is um now that's not to say that there that that reason is just opinion or at someone's whim i don't believe that at all i think but it's always much muddy the waters are much muddier than we want to believe and especially from the lay person's perspective of it um we just say well yeah i want to be rational or we might say um i think more often i want to be scientific is that a scientific, you know, statement that you're making? Is yeah. that a scientific approach? And I mean, Haman, I think I said Haman by accident before, Haman really points this out well um, in his critique of Kant that, uh, you know, Kant thinks he's just stepping back and doing reason, right? He's just, he's this neutral, unbiased, even scientists know this, right? You can't, you always have to account for bias. But, I mean, Kant and some others really think, you know what, I'm just going to do, I'm going to step back and this is the way it is. You're importing, you know, so much into doing that um, that there's, you know, the, even as the French are trying to do everything according to reason, um, they're doing it in a very French way, and they're reacting to, you know, um, culturally uh, shaped things, stuff like that. But um, sorry, Peter, go ahead. You, you got good stuff here. Yeah, no, I was just, I mean, with Kant too. I mean, he has a he has a, a book, a great book entitled uh, "Critique of Pure Reason." Mm-hmm. Right um, now, it's great. If you like Kant, and if you don't know philosophy, it's going to be—it's—it's it's one of these things that makes people think philosophy is just a bunch of bunk and you know a waste of time. But if you—if you have some background in philosophy and you haven't read Kant, you've got to do it. I mean, Kant is is phenomenal, and he does exactly what you're saying. Is he says, "I'm going to—I'm going to become unbiased," and he, to a large extent, he does. He he breaks himself—he breaks himself out from that. He's trying to, you know, rescue, um, you know, bring bring human, and he's trying to bring. Uh, um, uh, uh, Rousseau in and he's trying to all of these these like kind of major thinkers that came right around his time or just before him and he's trying to synthesize them in a in a in a sincere way and he does a fantastic job of it as insofar as it goes but as we see after Kant there's a I mean this big shift saying you know I don't even this this project may be maybe a lost project and so then you start rushing very quickly into nihilism and things like well, things and you get the hegelians lines. that want to bring back some sense of spirit at least or... well yeah well but i mean hegel's the same i mean he's doing a, a very similar thing to Kant, right right right, right. I mean, and that he's trying to justify reason it's the pure spirit and he's going to try to do it using history yeah. yeah exactly but that spirit is very i mean that's a that's a rational you know right, it's just right it's just this uber and there's rational. a purpose thing there's a, something that can be divined in there uber with uh, german philosophers yeah. <laughs> Um, but but what I guess I was trying to get is is even the responses to Kant are still gonna be living somewhat in Kant's world because they're <clears throat> um, yeah I agree you, I mean you see that the lines have shifted what the game you know the game change happened yeah but. Kant in, in philosophy Kant is definitely one of those players that makes a that makes a pretty monumental shift people have to deal with Kant after that but then going back to the question of I mean this is all coming after what we're talking about in terms of how people are dealing with the church and what's um 
like I said earlier, the, one of the things that I find interesting is that philosophy oftentimes leads, you know, it precedes culture. The cultural changes come after, and there becomes a kind of a, a simplifying of the philosophy that, that came a generation or two before. And um, I, think, I think you have, you know, in the church that, that, that real tension that the lay person sees, like, well, I want to be rational. I want to be reasonable. I want to, I want to look at the at Rousseau's project and 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 find something, you know, to to latch onto there. But what does that mean then to the faith that was handed down to me from my parents and my grandparents? And that there's a there's a lot of tension that rises up there. And I think it becomes especially difficult for, um, for those people who are who are thoughtful but don't have the the time or the resources to really dive deep into these philosophers and see what they're doing and then be allow allow themselves to be critical of those philosophers too even though as I, as I often say is you know I can find things that I think philosophers are wrong on but I there are very few philosophers I've read that I would consider myself even close to you know being sm- as smart as so it's that doesn't mean I can't be critical of but and I think going off that Peter one of the changes that we see happens for the Catholic Church at least in here and this will happen with Vatican I partly um, is I think the Catholic Church here we're going to see begins to realize it's losing the ruling class, right? It's, it no longer mm-hmm. has the hold it had on the elites, on the intellectuals. And losing their talent. Right. And so it's going to double down on what becomes the bread and butter, which is the masses. Mm-hmm. And so Vatican I is going to double down on authority, papal authority. But you're also going to see in what follows an emphasis on what we would consider as Lutherans and what enlightened people would consider superstitious things. Um, Some of the Marian apparitions, miracles, things of this nature that will really be held up for the common people, um, I think is showing where the Roman Church at that point sees its uh, its future or um, where it's real, it's... There's going to be a shift in what the uh, the bread and butter of the Roman Church is, and so rather now than um, the Roman Church driving culture, shaping culture, um, being the home of the influencers, it's going to become more of a reactive institution. Not that it, not that the church isn't always reactive in some ways, um, but it's also going to find itself, um, and, and you're going to see this later with the church identifying with uh, the labor movements, things like this. I mean, there's also, I think, Christian issues that come into play with that, and Peter will disagree with his libertarian leanings. But, um, but uh, you know, th- there is going to be a shift that takes place in the Catholic Church. And, Mike, I think you seem like you had something you want to say on that. I, just no, should, I should say, though, I mean, freedom of association, I'm all for that. So No, I think you're right, uh, and Noel makes that point, that uh, the Catholic Church is going to then— pay attention more to the causes of the the regular person which is has it's a good thing um but that's where they're going to have their power into the in, in the masses rather than in the elite and maybe i can just bring in worship here just for for a little bit the talent is going to go to other places instead of the church and so i think you have a very distinctive um split here where uh, instead of the church being the, the great patron of the arts and music, um, you're going to have those artists go elsewhere, right? So you have a, a, a distinction, uh, you know, probably starting in the 1700s, I suppose, where art shifts away from um, a mixture of theological and uh, Greek mythology as their topic and going to go more into uh, enlightenment and stuff like that. And that's where art's very, very instructive for us because as you said, um, Peter, that philosophy uh, precedes the culture often art does that too. And so art will then 
well, then you can think of, you know, a little bit later, Picasso saying uh, with uh, with his art, this is not really that great. You know, this is chaos, you know, this whole reason thing. Right. And so you kind of get into, first of all, impressionism and then eventually you end up into, you know, cubism, surrealism and then uh, what we call modern art today. Uh, and f- worship wise the talent's not there anymore and so people aren't thinking about that anymore they're not developing music they're not thinking about the actual uh the propers and all those kinds of things as much anymore certainly it happened um but you can you can think of today where we we're at the point where the great artists the famous artists don't need the church anymore and so they're going to pop country rap wherever and they're not and they because of that there is a no more of a, there's no more grounding into the great texts of uh, of the scripture you can think of j.s bach whose music came out of the scripture you know so he's going to do a whole whatever just on matthew right matthew's passion um and so you have this long stretch where you know, from from Trent until Vatican II, not a whole lot happens within the Catholic Church liturgically and music-wise. And the same is true for Lutherans. And uh, you lose your talent. You, you've lost your talent, and it does go back to that early modern period. And I think, um, you know, I don't want to give the impression that just the Roman Catholic Church suffered from this. Um, in many ways, I think... Protestantism in the long run is probably hurt even more when you look at continental Protestantism because uh, the higher critical method um, and just the general culture, um, Protestant countries on the continent especially, but uh, Germany especially, are going to be very much influenced by the Enlightenment. Um, and you're going to have, you know, Enlightenment princes, things of this of this nature. And, uh, and so it's not only Catholicism that will suffer, where Protestantism probably suffers more in the long run is that Protestantism, uh, at least some of the state churches, try to harness these ideas and really incorporate them into how they do theology. And so when Protestantism loses its you know, reason for existing, which is justification by grace through faith, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, um, the, Christianity is an empirically historical religion, um, there's going to be a lot of foundations that are really shook, and then you're going to have um, fascism and communism kind of come in and finish the job in many places uh, in Germany. Yeah, Mike, you mentioned that you know the church lost its its talent, and you talked a lot about the arts, but it also loses its intellectual talent. Mm-hmm. You know, the 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 university arises out of the church, and then the university at this time is in a in a way kind of ripped away from the church, and that's that's too violent. But it um, or even marginalized for a while. That you know, the Enlightenment doesn't need the university. The, many of the great Enlighteners are not teaching it. You know, Hume refuses a post, things like this. So I think that's very true, Peter, too. But you also have a while where they, where the university becomes where the theologians still have some sway, mm-hmm. but no one cares or wants to listen. And that's played out and in England, yeah. Right, especially. yeah. yeah. No, and I just think it's interesting that you've got that, that shift, you know, the... The, the artists don't need the church anymore because there are other places where they can, you know, win their win their bread. And uh, also the uh, intelligentsia, the academics, they don't need the church anymore either. And so you just have that huge shift. I mean, there's just a massive shift. And I often wonder, Wade, you've probably thought about this more than I have, but, you know, where where are we in the, the arc of history 
in terms of you know 100 years from now what when people look back or 500 years from now when people look back where will where will we play in that and how will the church's role play through that this you know the, I, th- I love the term talent because just just in a general sense like you know where do the people that are good at what they do right i mean the people that are you know the the geniuses the borderline geniuses the, the those wh- where do they find the ability to to do to exercise or to execute their craft and and before the enlightenment it was in the church i mean almost exclusively in the west or, or in in europe it was in the church yeah and so i i think what's going to ha- what is happening is that um, talent in the arts and in the, in academia are then going to uh, find their um, for lack of a, a a better term their um, credentials from the secular world and try to bring that into the church. So you can see that with Christian contemporary music and stuff like that. So there it 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 ends up com- trying to come back. I mean. Th- Money is now being poured in through capitalism for for music in the church, but it doesn't come from Bach being able to just really mind uh, the text like Matthew. It's going to come. Can this sell? Right. And I think there's probably a parallel um, into the intellectual world too. How do I affect the church? Well through business or through psychology or through any of the sciences and try to come from that point of view and put it onto the church and be successful. You're finally trying to sell something. And we're talking more about American capitalism than we are overall. But maybe just one point and then go back to to Peter. Um, You know, there's two directions that I think the church, especially on the continent, is going to go. One is what Wade was talking about, where um, you're going to try to play the ball ball game. You're going to demythologize, or you're going to uh, you have the state church kind of situation. BPC at that time, uh, to take a term from our day back then and say, okay, we'll play the game. We'll be reasonable, kind of stuff like that. Or you're going to be highly pietistic. And Wade mentioned that, too, in the Catholic sense with, you know, uh, kind of the maybe what we would call superstition, stuff like that. But um, in the Protestant world, you see it again, kind of in fundamentalism or maybe probably a better way to talk talk about it is pietism, which is going to spur on just a great amount of evangelism and missiology in the new world and in in what we call today the third world but there's going to be an anti-intellectual bent right so even in lutherans and conservative lutherans in america still there's this idea that if you go to a place of higher learning and get a higher degree somehow you're going to be corrupt which is ridiculous because it's not the it's not the system it's not that you go to university is the problem the problem is if you go to university it's a bad university it's like when someone says well, I got a divorce, so I'm never getting married again, so I'm going to just live with my girlfriend uh, because marriage is bad. Why are nope, you telling mar- people what we were talking about? <laughs> <laughs> marriage is not bad. The institution of marriage is not bad. It's sinful people in marriage, right? Yeah. And you, and every pastor has heard that too. In the same way, uh, when, when Lutheran pastors in the past, and maybe even still today, say, well, if somebody goes to a university, that's where they're going to be corrupt. And the problem is the university. Well... The problem is not the university. The problem is if the university is teaching something that's incorrect. Yeah, right? well, there's there's something interesting there, too, because you talked about how you're trying to kind of shove 
you know, the arts and, and, and even academics back into the church after they've kind of made their bones. But previously, before the era that we're talking about, they made their bones in the church. I mean, going right. to the university was in the church. And so you just think about how, you know, all of us have gone to graduate school and kind of how you, you go into it and you don't go there necessarily looking to be to be changed by the individuals, but you are. I mean, those the 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 culture around that surrounds that is going to influence you and the way that you see the world afterwards is different. That's not to say that that you've been changed at a, at a fundamental level, but this is part of the process of becoming educated. And, and this is, this is why I go through it. Well, when the church controls the, the, the strings of education and all the, the hubs of education, well then the, the, you know, you have different people in there that are, you know, more or less kind of quote unquote churchly, but you, th- that's the, that's the drive, the thrust when the, when it becomes, when the universities, um, when the, you know, the, places you go to become, you know, artists and universities and, and, uh, and what do you call it? Not salons, but places you go to learn art. <laughs> um, they, when they're not controlled by the church anymore, those, the influences are just going to be different. So someone who's a, you know, a faithful Christian looks at the, uh, um, you know, learns their craft and they come back in the church and say, Hey, I can serve this. And that's wonderful. But it's very different from someone who was, who was, you know, raised in the church, so to speak, intellectually right. and brings that and I, to the I church. Think, um, you know, to get it kind of your Wait, original question. Wait, I just got question. a gnat in my ear and it's like yeah, fluttering around. It, it, uh, I think to get to your original question, someone too of the church's reaction to this is I think we we forget sometimes the the breadth of um, the breadth of uh, opinions and the um, the amount of free discussion that took place in the church throughout most of its history. You um, read the early church fathers and there's all kinds of discussions that are taking place. Even in the Middle Ages, people think of a monolithic church, but it's perhaps, um, in few times in history, been more diverse than it was with the religious orders, the the different liturgical practices, um, things of that nature. The the Lutheran Church, I think people picture the Lutheran Church after Luther and think everybody was just in lockstep. You cannot study Lutheran history and think that in the least. Um, but I think the mistake we think is that we think the church is most vibrant then when there's not discussion taking place. And I think that's um, the opposite of the truth. I think there's a real danger to the church when it becomes stale and there's an unwillingness to have discussion. Um, I think that betrays not a confidence of faith, but a fear. Um, if we talk, we'll, we'll, we'll be talked out of our faith or we'll lose. And uh, sometimes you might be talked out of aspects of your faith, but those might be very healthy aspects that you're talked out of because you may um, strip away from what you thought was your faith things that are not inherently Christian to begin with, and you'll be pushed back further into your confession to have to think things through more. Now, how do I think, you asked Peter, how do I think the church is reacting or will react now? I think extremely poorly. I don't have a lot of hope for it. Because I think what you find, especially a lot of Christian institutions doing, is withdrawing and turning in on themselves. And they think we are here now um, to preserve our institution or maybe to preserve our whatever (coughs) idiosyncrasies or statements it might have. And uh, what I think you're going to find is that, A, they don't preserve themselves very well at all because they become stagnant, right? They lose their vibrancy. And B, they become very ill-equipped to engage those around them, which is... Um, central to what the Christian church is called to do, right? I mean, that's like the most Jesus thing that Jesus tasked the church with doing. And so I think, um, and and I will say, I don't want to plug my institution, but I do, one of the things I enjoy about our faculty at our institution is I think that we have a faculty that is very committed to 
um, wanting to be faithful to the scriptures, um, being in the scriptures, but also wanting to be able to converse with their neighbor, with the world, and to do so in a um, in a meaningful fashion. To 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 be in a positions in one in a position in one's field that you merit respect when you're having the conversation. You don't come across trying to appeal to um, you know some lack of confidence or, or to shout. Um, but I don't see that as being the response overall. I see a lot of um, universities becoming either um, detached from their historical role, detached from the church, or becoming Bible colleges 2.0, you know, on steroids. Um, and I don't know that that is an extremely positive development. And we're going a little bit askance from the Enlightenment, but all these wingnets we've tried to make applications comes, to this today. Is, this all comes from the Enlightenment. I mean, right, that whole exactly. question of faith and reason, that's nothing new in the Enlightenment, it's just that it becomes more of a faith or reason question. And you have this this idea that faith is fighting would that against be, would it. Would the binary, would that be Descartes? That Am would I be, wrong yeah. or right on that? That'd it, be Cartesian, yeah. Yeah, no, and, that, and the binary thinking, I, I think I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but um, one of the things I would tell my students when I taught was, if someone gives you two choices, always take the third. And uh, then they kind of look at me weird, and I'd say because life almost never gives you two choices. There's always more, and that's. But in in our modern world, we think of things in very binary terms. So faith and reason. Going back to the book I referenced earlier, that Wade needs to read, um, Ramy Bragg's Eccentric Culture, was um, one of the things he talks about is how. Europe's culture comes from not from Europe, from the continent, but from Athens and from Jerusalem. Well, I mean that's the that's the quintessential faith and reason, you know, dichotomy, right? But he talks about how that's that plays out then through through that. And so maybe it's a natural, you know, progression in uh, Western thought that you go from you know that foundation to then saying what's the distinction between. Or, or which which side do you fall on? Do you fall on you know Athens or Jerusalem or faith or reason? And I think just uh, Mike, you led with talking about Notre Dame and um, it becoming you know the temple what De Raison or <clears throat> the yep. temple of reason. I think it shows too that um, it it wasn't just that the French Revolution wanted reason to be supreme in politics. Um, but there's a natural inclination for the church and for those who oppose it um, to want to just assert themselves beyond their role. So, right, they, they could have asserted themselves in politics and said, and if you want to go to Notre Dame, you go to Notre Dame. <clears throat> but there's something uh, very important in the fact that they want to um, inhabit that, right? They want to transform that. And I think there's a warning for the church as well. When the, I mean, the church has had that same impulse historically. But I think there's something... Uh, to be remembered for our own day, too, um, a reminder for us that in our own lives, um, sometimes it's enough to try to be what you're to be about, vocation, whatever else, and to not have to uh, go further or impose beyond, <clears throat> beyond what you desire. And I, I, we're not going to go down this it amazes me now, internet theology in conservative Christian circles now comes down to you can't hold this or that opinion because otherwise there'll be women pastors and um, homosexuality. <clears throat> and, you know, this is like the two great fears. And um, But I think you do see um, there's a hostility among some who feel like they've been marginalized by the church or hurt by the church um, to want to begin to inha- inhabit that realm or to, to, to kind of get some payback. And I think at a certain point, it maybe does the church well to step back and say, you know what, 
we maybe have a little of that coming. That doesn't mean it's right. It doesn't mean people should be doing that. Um, but what has the church, not necessarily me personally, but all of us, right, the church historically as an institution, what has it done um, that it's worked that anger in people? And sometimes people will say, well, well, it's spoken the truth. People hate the gospel. Most of those people are not mad at the gospel. In fact, they couldn't even articulate it because the church did a, um, can I say piss poor on the podcast? Mm-hmm. A well, piss poor job can. of articulating it. Um, they're mad at a church that I think um, understandably is viewed for being hypocritical or fixated on certain aspects of morality. Um, and I, th- I mean, we see this with the Pennsylvania stuff now coming out with the Roman Catholic Church, <clears throat> but these things happen in Protestantism with the state church as well. Um, there's sometimes just desserts for us trying to live on capital we shouldn't have been trying to live on. Um, and I think we need not be too afraid because that also then opens up some opportunities to want to be church. When I gave my Michigan paper, I kind of talked about that a little bit that, you know, we kind of got by on the 1950s of, well, of course, if you're going to be a good American, you send your kid to Sunday school because you're not a communist. Well, there's some real doors that are open to the church now, too, in this situation um, to not try to fall back on on power or on, um, you know, social capital, but to try to, to just be um, church as well. And I think you're going to see the churches that thrive post-enlightenment try to do that to one extent or another. Not always even in the right way, but to some extent or another. Yeah, I would say, you know, just if, if you're thinking, uh, what, what do I do about this? Well... I think you could support the arts within the church and philosophy and theology within the church too. Um, you know, uh, going back to that idea that okay, to to take Peter's idea that okay, or mine and Peter's idea that um, you know now in in arts and maybe in the intellectual world, it's taking something from that and then trying to put it onto the church instead of the church being the patron of those things. And both sides have have their problems. And trying to connect that with Wade's point about, okay, look at they tried to, it's not like re, it's not like the French Revolution said, "Well, Notre Dame's stupid." You know, it's, they understood that as a powerful symbol. They wanted right. to go into that, and and sometimes the church wants to. Okay, we're going to take over rock and roll, yeah. or we're going to go take over Congress, and that's going to fix our problem. Um, maybe the solution is um, support the institutions that teach art and philosophy. By the way, wlc.edu. Um, if you do have a big gift, let me let us know. We can we can tell you where to go. Uh, but seriously, like even in your local congregation, if your local congregation is not paying the organist, that's a problem. If your local congregation is not um, trying to support new new musicians and stuff, it's, you can start on that level too and say, we value this well, and kind I, of thing. If I, if I could give lay people... If they Wade, what's one thing I can do for my pastor? The uh, nobody's the, ever asked that, by the but way. But the the kick I'm on lately. This is really what I think you should do if you're a pastor. Ask him what he's been reading lately. And he may not like you doing that, but you'll <laughs> be doing him a big favor if you follow it up with, you know, Pastor, I want you to have time to read, and I want us to be supportive of it. But it also, I think, it's good for him to have to think about and to be able to say. Um, encourage your pastors to be engaged, to not just be, um, I learned what I needed to learn in seminary and now I know all I need to do, um, to uphold the institution or to hold the party line. Um, but to remember you're not only there to make sure, you know, Mildred goes to her grave, um, safely, but to be able to engage those around you, to be aware of, 
um, the conversations that are taking place. And I think one of the, the sad things with the Enlightenment is that we're not meant, and ho- this is why I'm really getting into homin and Peter, we got to be reading him, but he do- he tries to do that, right? And, and and the church needs more of that, not less of that. That does not mean every pastor has to be um, a political science expert or a philosopher or whatever the case may be, but rather than withdrawing... But some should be. Right, we, right? we need to be, be able to to engage, and I think... Um, <laughs> You know, Vatican One failed to do that largely, and Vatican Vatican Two is really an admission of that, right? Mm-hmm. That, um, but Vatican Two maybe got a little too hippieish, in its own right. Um, but yeah, I'll leave it to either of you to close us out. We're going a little long, but I, I I'm kind of digging this. Yeah, well, let me just back up a little bit because one of the things kind of been dancing around. I just want to make it explicit. Peter means metaphorically. He's actually sitting still. I am moment. sitting. Yeah, I, although the, the gnat in my ear either is laying eggs now or it's. Dead. Well, you are agreeing so, though that the gnats are. Yeah, they, they got bad. Although yeah, they're I believe them, we, so. I just built this table with different wood than all the other stuff out. We've never had gnats before. I, I do think, think there's maybe some. Or what the if table. they were in the? Could they have been in the wood? I don't wood? think they were in the wood. Was I think the wood sitting outside for a while before we built nope, it? Nope, it wasn't. And when I was building it, there was no problem. I think that this is a this is pine that has been cedar tone stained, and there's something in it that wow. they like. But you are agreeing too that they are. There's a lot here. We've never had gnats here before. <laughs> And now they're here. I thought it was because of you, Wade, it, it but might, I'm now convinced that it's the wood. It I am, still I am Wade, literally I straining at gnats. <laughs> so the idea of, of faith and reason, and you have to choose one, and you know which side are you on, I think that you see that in the French Revolution on the one side saying reason, reason, reason. You see that in um, a lot of evangelical circles in the, in the United States. Christ or the world. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like, you know, choose, choose, you know, make your, make your choice. And it always bothers me because as Christians, we're not... We're not unrational or irrational. What? Tupac or Biggie? Tupac or Biggie? Yeah, to 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 keep up with the uh, with the choices that we all have to make. Um, (laughs) But the, uh, I mean, I always say we are, you know, as Christians, we we are, we have faith, and we are human beings, and we have reason, and we need to understand this together and this goes back to what i was saying about descartes too and the whole separation of the individual it's not when we try to separate things we create we create camps that people feel in you know i was gonna say emboldened but really it's almost uh that they they feel they have to defend one camp against the other and that becomes the danger and i think that the that the west fell into that that trap when it was trying to reject the church and culturally and the church falls into that trap when it tries to you know reject academic culture or intellectual culture and say that's not what we do we do something different uh i don't think we do ourselves any favors when i was in an undergraduate and i was planning to go to seminary and uh, decided i was going to go to graduate school first and i was sitting at a kitchen table of one of my professors um and just talking to him about it he's asking me what my plans are and i said yeah i think i'm going to go for philosophy and I want to get a master's for sure and, and maybe a PhD and I said I know you know if I'm going to go to seminary why you know why go why go through all that and he looked at me straight faced and said said I think every pastor should be a PhD and he said no I'm not saying that every pastor should go out and get their PhD but every congregation deserves that sort of commitment and that you know he said so absolutely go do it you know now maybe if I talked to him now and I didn't go to seminary he would say you know well maybe you should just go to seminary <laughs> but 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 the, you're on a podcast. The, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you could see me now, um, no. But the the point was it was a it was a influential moment in my life because I re, it, it forced me to really think about that in the term and not in terms of juxtaposition of 
faith and reason of being a pastor or being an academic, but really seeing those as things that are not, not necessarily in opposition to each other. And certainly there's tension, but we have tension in ourselves as individuals. There's tension that, that's built right into us. And we talked about this a lot with Lutheran theology and the simile and all of these paradoxes. Well, and this is where postmodernism is in some ways a friend to the church. Absolutely. Because it starts to recognize these things and say these distinctions are not as clear as we think. And or, Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, and if you don't think so, I mean, go read... Uh, Go read Jean-Luc Marion, who's a postmodernist, you know, through and through, and he's a, he's a Catholic that's you know Catholic through and through. So, yeah, I, that's all. That's all I have to say right now. And like you said, Wade, we've gone long, so you should probably wrap it up. No, why don't you wrap it up? I think that's very good. I mean, especially postmodern that thought on postmodernism. It's a reaction against modernity, and that has that's going to have some good stuff in it. Don't just 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 don't just say oh those postmoderns, right? Actually, maybe actually read them. Who just did an episode on postmodernism? We should throw that out oh, there. Oh, that reminds me. I had mentioned before, Thinking Fellows just did a, a great one on it. Let me pull it up on my you can find iTunes all their... for podcasts to get the title of it because I don't, or the episode number at least. Well, but... while Wade's doing that, uh, seriously, I mean, if you have some extra cash laying around, don't take it out of your regular offerings, but uh, support continuing education in the arts and the church. It may, it may have to be a groundswell kind of thing um, and where students are brought up into a church, future college students are brought up in the church interested in that kind of stuff, and they will demand that from those higher institutions. Uh, higher institutions, let's in a capitalistic world, they go where the students go, right? Absolutely. And uh, <laughs> if you want to, if, if you don't have the big, if you don't have the, the, the big money to, to support a chair of art or philosophy at WLC, but if you do, WLC.edu, <laughs> um, but you want to support in your local congregation, there's nothing better I can think of than um, saying, I'm going to pay for uh, the organist getting paid better. I'm going to pay for a music program. I'm going to pay for continuing education for our pastor. Um, that, 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 that's, that's some serious, actually on the ground, boots on the ground kind of stuff that uh, I know, I'll speak for 90% of pastors out there, we'd really appreciate I'm worried that Mike maybe has been his job has been threatened or something that he's he's really. I've, I've been I've been I've been asked to be a development director now. <laughs> I was just gonna I, say, I, I thought maybe you had uh, been, his job was shifty. <laughs> yeah, he was, he's <laughs> no, I might be terrible at that. But like when I go t- when I go by, I make my wife buy all of our cars' names are in her name because she has to do it. Because when I get there, they're like, "Oh, we had this great deal." I'm like, "Oh, that sounds like such a good deal." Are you sure I don't want to pay you more? <laughs> the. Uh, the Thinking Fellows episode, they don't do episode numbers anymore, I don't think, but it's entitled Postmodernism, and it came out August 21st of um, 2018. 2018, if if we're still around in a couple years and you're listening to this. And he uh, had on the show with him uh, Bruce Hillman, who I found to be very insightful and helpful, so I highly recommend you check that out. Um, we are part of the 1517 Network. We always mention that at the beginning of our episodes, sometimes at the beginning of Wayne It's. Um, but that'd be a great uh, podcast in general, but episode to check out. And you can find all those podcast episodes at 1517legacy.com slash podcast. And you go there and uh, listen to their podcast and come back to uh, Let the Bird Fly. And remember, wherever you find yourself in life, let the bird fly. I don't care what the people are thinking. I'm not drunk. I'm just a tanker. I set him up another round. I set him up another round. Another round, 
rush My babe began to fuss and I said, honey, honey I don't care what the people are thinking I'm not drunk, I'm just drinking the 